Hi everyone, and welcome to the podcast, Be the Blank Your Mom Wants You to Marry. Alongside my co-host, Ariana Kenningsberg, my name is Gabrielle Resnick, and we are excited you're here with us. Hi everyone, the goal of our podcast is to be a guide for young women like ourselves exploring life and career paths. We will be broadcasting our conversations with successful women across industries and professions to offer an intimate look at the opportunities, challenges, and rewards for working women. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoy the program. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. Today, we are delighted to be talking to Dr. Elisa Septimus. Dr. Septimus is a psychologist, speaker, mindfulness trainer, consultant, and mother of five. Dr. Septimus has a psychotherapy practice in South Florida, as well as a virtual practice. She is the past assistant director of CARES, an adolescent day program at the Child and Family Institute of Mount Sinai, St. Luke's in New York, where she led a team of psychologists in their treatment of teens struggling with mental illness. Dr. Septimus is also a consultant who provides supervision to mental health professionals that are seeking to expand their clinical skills. Dr. Septimus speaks on a variety of topics from the field of psychology. Her engaging and informative talks help people learn ways to cultivate the best within themselves, enhance their relationships with others, and create more meaningful and fulfilling lives. She gives her listeners practical tools to apply the latest psychology research into their everyday lives. Dr. Septimus specializes in treating anxiety, depression, and relationship difficulties. For over 20 years, she has helped people learn methods to recover and heal from their distress and problems. In addition, she works with individuals striving for personal growth and psychological well-being. Her mindfulness training sessions help individuals learn to pay attention and be more present in their increasingly distracted lives. Dr. Septimus's personal interests include spending time with family and friends, travel, sports, music, and reading. Dr. Septimus, thank you for your time out of your busy schedule. Welcome to the podcast. It's great to be here. (laughs) We're so happy to have you. So we've been really looking forward to talking with you. In fact, we took a poll on our Instagram, and clinical therapy was actually one of the most popular careers requested by our listeners. Oh, wow. So before we dive in, I just want to provide some structure for our conversation today. So we want to focus on three main areas. First, your personal experience in choosing your career. So when and how did you know that this is what you wanted to do, starting with college, applying to graduate school, and going through training, and then your first job or jobs. Second, your career trajectory and your work-life experience, being a mother, raising a family, and what that looks like within the context of your career. And then third, mental health is obviously a very timely topic, and a lot of data and news about the effects of the pandemic on mental health among everyone, especially young adults and teenagers, So we really want to get your perspective on what you're seeing and how your profession is helping all of the people cope and deal, also with the recent horrific mass shootings at the Texas school and other incidents across the country. What can we be doing to heal and prevent these terrible tragedies? So let's jump in. Okay. When and how did you know that clinical psychology was what you wanted to study? Interestingly enough, I was somewhat of a late bloomer. I was in college, and I declared philosophy as my major, and I was very fascinated, interested in learning about all types of thought, and I studied Aristotle and Plato, Descartes, Hume, and I was really enjoying myself, actually, until 
one day in late in my sophomore year, my mom says to me, Aliza, what on earth are you going to do with this philosophy major of yours? And she got me thinking. I think I was so involved in the college experience and learning that I really wasn't thinking so much in advance. But she got me thinking, and I, I realized that all through high school, I was, the, I was the one that my friends came to, to for us to figure out how to deal with problems with their boyfriend and their parents and relationship issues. And I, I really enjoyed helping my friends work through different psychological stuff with them. And I also had a best friend, and the two of us would analyze everything and everyone. So I, I realized I had an interest in people and relationships and solving problems and connecting. I also knew that I wanted to do something that felt meaningful and purposeful to me and helped other people. And I sort of realized, you know what? Becoming a psychologist seems like the right fit. So what I did was immediately at that point, because I think I was a little late in the game, but not too late, I began to explore what are the prerequisites and requirements for psychology graduate program. And I immediately Sci uh, I immediately enrolled in the fall, the following fall semester, in a bunch of psychology classes, and I was able to do almost a major in psychology as well, and get all the requirements I needed to go to graduate school. And once you made this transition, were your parents now supportive of your new career choice? My parents are the supportive type. Mm -hmm. I'm one of seven, and they had. They were raising kids going in all sorts of directions, and they were pretty open to what their kids wanted to do. So thank God, yes, they were supportive. And they didn't really direct me, but they were okay with decisions I was making. And what did you do to prepare to be a great candidate for graduate school once you made this transition? So the first thing is that, I, like I said, I made sure everything was in order in terms of prerequisites I would need. So that was probably 10 psychology classes. But in a and I studied for the GRE, which is the standardized test that you need to get into psychology programs. But in addition to that, I did research. And research back then was not like you could Google. I sort of called friends of friends of people that knew that were psychologists. And I spoke to some of them. And they said, well, Graduate school is very competitive. You really should get either clinical or research experience because you have to, you have to make, you know, it's competitive and you should stand out in some kind of way. And I started looking for summer internships and internships during college as well. So are there any other admissions criteria needed to apply to graduate school in clinical psychology? Let me think. I think it was having, like I said, the college classes that you needed, the GRE, and building up your transcript resume with mm -hmm. as much experience as you can get that's relevant for the field of psychology. And when you were applying to get your doctorate, how did you decide where to apply? Good question. I, I think part of the decision was what kind of psychology. So there are adult programs and child programs. There, there's 
in addition to clinical, there's all kinds of other psychology, health psychology, school psychology. And I was interested in working with teens in particular. So the programs that were most interesting to me were the ones that offered clinical plus child as a specialty. And I, another factor for me was the graduate school is about five years or longer, five or six years. And I wanted to be geographically in a place where I felt like I would have a good social life and also be able to date easily. Mm -hmm. So that narrowed it down from my perspective to the New York area. So I was looking for a program in New York. I was looking for a program that had this school-based child clinical psychology uh, offering, and it limited me at that point. But it was good because I zeroed in on something that I wanted that I thought was a good match for me. Mm -hmm. And how important in your field is it for you where you get your doctorate from? That's a good question. I think, okay, there are, there are graduate schools that are, I don't know if it's certified or endorsed by the American Psychological Association, APA approved. So if you go to an APA approved program, that's very helpful. And also, in your fifth year of grad school, you have to apply to competitive internships so the graduate schools that fare well in providing internships for, the, for their students, meaning if those students are getting matched at programs, that will serve them well. And I think that once you're already getting a good internship, I think that becomes part of your resume and the next step becomes easier. And where did you go for grad school? I went to Pace University. It's in New York. Check out our next episode with Gabriella Paz, a professional tennis player. And can you talk to us a little bit more about what the internships were like and what the application process really entailed? Sure. So while I was in college, during my junior and senior year, I actually got a position as a research assistant in one of the New York City hospitals. And I spent, I would say, 10 hours a week at that location assisting psychology researchers there. And that was very helpful in terms of just exposure. I got exposed to psycho the psychology department, and I got a good look at what it's like to be working in the field, which was very helpful because it helped confirm something that I believed I wanted to do. The challenge was that in addition to a full schedule at college, I had to balance that with my research responsibilities. I know that some of my graduate fellow students that I was with felt that that, for them, they preferred to wait until they were done with college, and they didn't go directly to graduate school right after their senior year in college, but they waited a year or two. And they were able to get the research experience they wanted or the clinical experience they wanted without having to compromise their college experience. And do you have any tips on how to balance those 10 hours you were spending a week and your schoolwork? I think you might want to think about 
taking, making sure that if you're going to do have these outside responsibilities, balancing it with a course load that allows for that. Also, another thing to do is maybe ramp up that kind of experience during your summers when you're not matriculated in college. That might be easier. And can you describe what student life was like for you during grad school? Sure. The program is on the smaller side compared to other types of graduate programs. So let's say there were about 20 of us students. And we spent a lot of time together. And we're all in it together. So whatever challenges we had, we were all relating to each other. There was a lot of group work together. And I think most of us were studying things we really enjoyed. So we also had a lot in common. We're doing things we enjoyed and we're like-minded. I guess the things that drew me to the field drew them to the field to some degree. So it was nice. It was actually nice to have that infrastructure of friends. And how challenging was grad school relative to college or other work experience you had up to that point? Okay, let me think about that for a second. First of all, I'm really enjoying going down memory, memory lane. This is fun <laughs> for me. I would say that I went to Stern College, which had a dual curriculum. So I was taking in college about seven courses a semester, similar to what we do in Yeshiva High School. And that was pretty demanding time-wise. So when I went to graduate school, the course load, I think, the, the amount of courses I was taking was less. But obviously, the, I think the expectation was greater in some way in terms of in learning independently. So on the one hand, less hours, more independent work. So it was a nice transition because my first year, we just focused mostly on coursework and learning. As the years progressed, my second year I had an internship, my third year... My fourth year, and by the time we're in our fifth year, we're pretty much having a full-time internship. So we got used to managing both work, coursework and schoolwork, and also managing these other internships that went on on the side. I'm not sure. Did I? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And what skills would you say are most important to be successful during graduate school? I would say time management and planning and organizational skills. I Especially because as you go through graduate school, in addition to everything else, you have to write a dissertation, which you have to do independently. So I would say what, what definitely helped me was I was like fascinated by the field and it's, it was, it, it's easier for me to study and learn things and spend a lot of time on ideas and concepts that interest me. That was helpful. But I think just making sure you're well organized. And I also think by, by the time you get to graduate school, you've been through many years of education. So you're preparing yourself. At least that's how I felt. And what was your social life like during graduate school? Well, as, as I've said, the my fellow students, we became a crew. We... We socialized outside. We spent time in school together. That was nice. I had less time for my friends that were not part of my graduate program. And I felt like 
it was this parallel process that a lot of my friends were in their own graduate schools and everyone's super busy. So that was a transition going from my college friends all living together and being together to all of us going out and doing our own things. And that was hard my first year just to transition out. But I adjust, I adjusted. And like I said, we had the camaraderie built into the school program. And were there a lot of women in your program? Yes, I would say 80% were women, and you see that a lot in the field of psychology. I guess women are just good psychologists. (laughs) (laughs) And what did you do during your summers? Well, after getting into grad school and knowing that I didn't have to earn my way, I remember my first year I traveled and had a good time. And I was less concerned with what comes up next. I think, I think for the most part, I did things unrelated to school in the summer. And that was our, my time to recover and do other things that I enjoy. And how did you pay for graduate school? I was fortunate enough to have my parents pay for graduate school. And I realized that that's... I was really lucky to have that opportunity and not to have to have graduate school loans. And also you previously spoke about when you decided on your area of focus. So when specifically did you decide on the specific area that you were focusing on? Hmm. I guess it was a process. I, I had to think about it when I realized that graduate school, some of them are more nuanced and, and it made me... I guess it caused me to think about it more. That's as much as I remember, but maybe I, maybe I was close to being a teenager. I was like the end of my teenage years, so I really related to teenhood and wanted to help that population. And what licensing or credentialing is necessary to actually graduate and then begin clinical practice? Okay, so... In grad school, in our fifth year of our program, we have to do a full-time internship. And after you complete your internship and your dissertation, you could graduate, and obviously all your coursework. But in addition to that, a few year, three years into graduate program, you have, to, you have to complete cumulative exams. So once you've done the exams, you finished your internship, and you, your dissertation was approved, then you qualify for collecting licensing hours. I'm going to say about 1,000, but I could be way off. <laughs> That's what I think I remember. People, collect, people get those clinically supervised licensing hours in different ways. I happen to have done a postdoc. You don't have to do a postdoc. You could have a supervised experience in, in which you, get all, you accumulated all those hours. Once you have all those hours, you qualify to sit for a licensing exam. If you pass your licensing exam, you are a licensed psychologist. And every state has their own licensing requirements. At the time, I was in New York. And interesting, interestingly, when I moved to Florida, Florida accepts the licensing exam of New York. You, you, you have to go and take other kinds of exams to make sure you know Florida laws specifically. But, but I think for most states, 
if you take the exam of your state, it could be transferable to other states that you move to later, or, or if you'd like to have those licenses later in other states. And what was the topic of your dissertation? I'm having PTSD as you ask me that question, <laughs> which is post-traumatic stress disorder. I'm kind of joking, but writing a dissertation was very stressful for me because, a as I said before, what makes you successful in graduate school is time management, organizational skills. You need a lot of that because you're on your own, spearheading your own very big research project, and I struggled with that. It was hard for me. I felt very overwhelmed. It was the first time I wrote something that large, so big. So I'll hang in there with my traumatic experiences. Okay. Well, what, when I, let me just take you back a little bit. When I was in college and I was a research assistant, the psychology department was overseeing a very large national study on physical abuse physical abuse of children. And I was lucky enough that I was hired when I was in graduate school to continue my research work with the psychology team there. And they gave me the opportunity of using the data that I was already, I was already involved in working with, using that data for my own dissertation. So it really was a practical decision. Some people are more idealistic. I wasn't. I knew I was overwhelmed by this project and I wanted to get it done. And here, there was a research team offering me data I can use that I need to analyze from my own original study. So dissertations have to be an original study. So, the, so North Shore Hospital, that's where I worked, they had all kinds of data about any aspect of adolescent physical abuse. And what I did was I looked at predictive factors of adolescent physical abuse, which means what are the factors that make teens vulnerable to be abused? Okay. And what I studied was the level of chaos and dysfunction within the family system. So I looked at how isolated the parents were in terms of social support. I looked at the mental illness of parents, parents that were depressed, parents that abused drugs, and parents that were socially isolated are more likely to engage in physical violence towards their children. And the, the other thing I, sh thing I should say is that during the dissertation process, there was a lot of statistics and analysis of the data, which was very challenging for me. But it's not uncommon to hire statistical consultants to help you with your work. So I did that, which was very helpful. And we're going to transition into talking about your postdoc position that you mentioned earlier. So how did you get this position? That, that reminds me of something important that I think I, want, that I would like yeah. to talk about. I was thinking of along the way the various opportunities that I had because of my social network. And 
for example, when I was in college trying to get a research or clinical position, I had a friend who said to me, my uncle's the director of the psychology department at North Shore Hospital. Let me give him a call and see if maybe there's an opportunity for you. And I, I think that's one example of a few where the door was open for me. I think had I bombed the interview and I wasn't a good candidate, I might not have gotten the position, but I was given an opportunity that helped me. And, and that was very helpful. So in talking about the postdoc, right? Mm -hmm. that, that was another example. My graduate, my, one of my very close graduate school friends had an internship at St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital, Mount Sinai. And he was telling me that he's staying on for the postdoc. And he said, well, three of us are staying on, but there are five positions. Why don't you apply? And I applied. And I had to go through the interview process and prove myself. But it certainly helped that one of my closest friends was there speaking favorably of me. Mm -hmm. And what did the first six months look like for you of your postdoc position? Okay, so my postdoc position was very unique because... I had been married and I was pregnant with my, my first child, Lital. So it was a great clinical experience. It was in the child and adolescent department, exactly what I was looking for. And it was, a, it was my first, no, it was, it was my second because the, the, that fifth year internship is pretty much working full time. But it was a new experience in a new place um, with a demanding schedule. Like the, you're supposed to work 40 hours, you work 60 hours. But in addition to that, I, I was pregnant and dealing with the changes in my body and not feeling so well. So it was challenging. And what was it what you expected did you get paid at that position? Yes, it's a, it was a paid position. Entry level, entry level salary. And the, our supervisors expected us to be pretty professional at that point because it's, it's sort of this transition between getting supervised and, and getting support but also, it is they they saw us as psychologists that are working. Full and you time. mentioned earlier one of your challenges were being pregnant. Do you have any other challenges that you faced in your postdoc position? I think there had been hand holding along the way through graduate school, and there was a transition here of. We're kind of on our own, and we really so, – so there, it was a little daunting. It was a little daunting to say, well, the buck stops here with me. There's no one in the room here. There's no one supervising everything I do. And that combined with this is the time in my life where I'm least experienced. So even though there are other jobs that I took after, I could rely on all those years of experience, and I didn't have – too much experience at this point. 
And how long did this position last? It was a one-year position that, it, yeah, it's designated as a one-year position. I personally gave birth to Lital towards the end of it. And so mine was extended a little later because I had to make up those weeks that I missed. Mm-hmm. But it, it's a one-year position Then I sat for my licensing exam. And then I was ready for my first job. And once you completed your postdoc program, what did you do next? Here's where more of social networking came, in, came along. As I mentioned, I had a friend in high school. We used to analyze things together. She, she ended up going the social work degree, and she had already been working because I believe her program was three years. She had been working in a fam- in a community mental health center and as I was beginning to think about what I'm going to do next my friend said to me hey there's a position opening up at my at my clinic why don't you apply for that position and once again that was helpful to me because that first job is very competitive you don't have much on your CV curriculum vitae in terms of experience so you really you know, you're in an entry position, but luckily, that was my first job. I got it. And can you describe your experience there? Sure. What was different there was in a community mental health center, you, I, was, I saw, I worked with people of all ages, which was newer to me. I had most, mostly dealt with children and adolescents, so it was the first time that I had a lot of adult patients and there it was also the first time where it wasn't a training experience so through the internships the externships the postdoc there was a lot of supervision and training advanced learning that took place this this environment was all about Billing, getting, getting your patients, seeing them, billing, keeping your numbers up, your stats up in terms of productivity levels. So it wasn't as an idealistic environment that I had come from where in the hospital settings that I was in, they really supported your own, pers- your own professional growth in addition to providing work for the hospitals. And so I want to transition a little bit to talk about your private practice. So when and why did you decide on private practice? Okay, so I loved the, I loved the settings that I was in. I actually, after I worked in the mental health cl- clinic, Another social connection, here we go. A supervisor of mine during my postdoc reached out to me and said, hey, Eliza, there's a supervising psychologist position in our hospital. Would would you be interested in interviewing? And there were a couple of things appealing to me about that. The first was that I love that hospital setting that I came from. That's where I did my postdoc. And I love the environment. And I also was interested in in teaching and training psychology interns and fellows, just like I had been. I love that that was part of the work that I did. So I was interested in that. But in addition to that, it was a three-day work posi- three-day 
per week position and I'd be coming from a full-time position in the clinic. And being that I had a child, I thought that would be a great balance for me. Okay, so then I was working there for a while and I at some point got a promotion and instead of being a staff psychologist who was a supervising psychologist, I became the assistant director of the Adolescent Day Program, as you mentioned. And I loved that work. I loved working with the teens. I loved supervising psychology interns and fellows. And I really enjoyed my work there. And I did it for a number of years. But then I felt that I wanted to eventually transition to the private sector. And I think it was a practical decision to some degree. The, we worked really hard, we worked long hours, and the pay was less than it would be in private practice. So on the one hand, it was a financial decision. And on the other hand, as the years went by and I was raising my family, I had, a, I had a, my second child, I wanted more autonomy and more control over my work life and more flexibility. And how would you say that your professional life has changed since then? Well, in certain ways, the work is very different. I, seeing people for psychotherapy full time for the most part, as opposed to doing those diverse things that I did in the hospital, which was in, in the hospital I was teaching and training and supervising and doing direct care. So here I was doing mostly psychotherapy work. But I all, and when I had my own practice, I was also able to do other things that interest me. So for example, as you mentioned, I, I did speaking engagements. I supervised psychologists that are at the level of wanting supervision to, to get their um, licensing hours. So I continue to do some diverse work, but I would say 90% of my time is, is doing psychotherapy. And what it allows me to do is work in a niche, work with populations that really interest me, more control over how, you know, what I'm doing day to day. And like I said, all those other things, you know, flexible lifestyle. The one thing that's challenging, I guess, the way, I, the way my business is set up is that I'm a, I'm a sole practitioner. And it's a little lonely. I, I love the hospital atmosphere where I have colleagues and we run ideas by each other and get a second opinion or just get to socialize. So I'm much more isolated now. But I, even with that, I think that um, I established a supervision group for my colleagues. We, we all meet once a week for supervision. And I can certainly, I share... One of my offices, because I have two, I have colleagues there. So there's ways to have more camaraderie and feel less isolated. And can you explain what your day-to-day -day looks like? Sure. Most of my days, I would say I have seven therapy sessions for 45 minutes each. And... 
I generally start at 10 o'clock in the morning because I want to work out and do my own thing and start a little late. But because I start at 10, I see patients every hour on the hour until 5. So lunch is a little spotty. I'm sort of gobbling food between appointments. But I decided that I'd rather do that, get a late start, and get to work out and do my thing. I, in addition sometimes take off to do consulting work. And like I said, some of, some of those hours are interspersed with supervision and getting supervision, giving supervision. But that, that's pretty much what it looks like. And what do you like best about private practice? And also, what are some of your biggest challenges? Hmm. Okay, so, so like I've said... The pluses are I get to do the kinds of clinical work that interests me. I get to set up my own hours. I get to take vacation when I want. I'm my own boss. The, I'm sorry, could you, could you remind me the other part of the question? Uh, <laughs> yeah, so also what are some of your biggest challenges oh okay all right and and like I said it's a little bit isolating I I also think because it's my own business and because um, working with some people that are fragile or vulnerable or have very serious issues I feel a sense of responsibility and even if I'm taking vacation or time off, I'm very sensitive to the needs of my patients and making sure I'm available, making sure I'm following up with everyone. So on the one hand, like I said, I have flexibility and autonomy. On the other hand, the buck stops with me and I want to provide a certain level of care and a certain level of accountability and so that you, so I have to have a certain level of responsibility too. Right. And would you say that today women face additional challenges or obstacles in any areas of clinical psychology? In this field specifically? Yeah. I think as a clinical psychologist, you could do lots of things. I, this is the road I took. So you could be doing psychological testing, you could be doing research, you could be doing teaching, you could do consulting work. So I, I think pretty much whatever personal obstacles you might face, I wonder if there's a way to adapt your work to meet those challenges. I think in, I think in general, like I've said, the... I've set my work life up to meet the needs of my personal life. And I did make those transitions twice, as I've mentioned, when I felt that things became too challenging or too difficult. So I went from full-time to part-time. I transitioned from the demand of a hospital setting to my own practice. So I, I don't, I, I think actually my field affords a lot of opportunities to do things the way you want to do it based on what your particular needs are. Would you encourage young women to pursue your career choice? I absolutely would. I, I find it 
meaningful and helpful. I, I find that there's room to work as little or as much as you'd like. There are a lot of choices within the field. Women are very much respected in the field. I, I'm, I would highly recommend it. And do you set personal and professional goals? Yes, I don't know if I'm meeting all my goals, but I, yes. Yeah. So for example, I wanted to expand and do more public speaking engagements. That was a goal of mine. So I marketed and networked to get those opportunities. I still have another goal that I haven't quite reached yet, but maybe if I speak about it in the podcast, I'll have to be accountable <laughs> to it. I want, I've, I did group work in various, in, in other places, and I, I want to be able to have further reach. So I spend 45 minutes with one person, and I would love to be able to connect with more people and maybe do therapeutic endeavors in a group setting. And another goal of mine is to tape webinars that people can purchase, which allows me to have even further reach, have offer, provide offerings that are less costly to people and create passive income. At this point, if I don't work, I don't get paid. But in that model, I can get paid once I produce this product. So those are my goals. And it's out there in the public, <laughs> so maybe it'll happen. And what daily habits or habit have you used that you believe are integral to your success? I try to... Well, well I guess one, one thing that's important is, in addition to the direct clinical work that you offer, there's phone calls and paperwork and billing... So I build that into my schedule because earlier on in my practice, I would say to myself that I'm going to get to it later and then it builds up and then it becomes overwhelming and it's not the fun part of my job. So I'd procrastinate and then I quickly learned that was a really bad idea. So I think that that's helpful to build in all the non-direct work that's involved and it's continued learning and no, you know, no taking and even thinking about the kind of work that I want to do with different clients to build that into my schedule. I think that that's been helpful. And you mentioned earlier that you have the morning to yourself before you start work. I want to dive in a little bit more uh, into your schedule. So what does the first and last hour of your day look like? The first part of my day is very hurried. Get myself up, get the kids up, get everyone to school, get them out, try to work out, get home, shower, grab a coffee, and go. So even though I start, I have to be ready, ready for work at 10, I mean, ready for my first patient, which means get to work a quarter to 10. Somehow the time sneaks up on me anyway, so I'm still, that's still a work in progress. At the end of the day, I, I do feel that 
I have these 15 minutes before the end of, you know, before I, I finish, let's say, seeing someone, my, the last person that I'm working with at 4.45, and I have these, I used to, I, I guess I should say, I used to then make phone calls and do paperwork and do all these kinds of things, and I realized I was just getting home much later than I had wanted. So I'm pretty strict with myself at wrapping things up in those last 15 minutes and making sure I can leave my office at five and get home for my, to my family. And like I said, it forces me to build in those, that time that I need other parts of my week. And are there any books you recommend young women to read for inspiration or knowledge? Oh, I've had a couple of books that I found very inspiring. I really enjoyed The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey. And uh, can I mention a few? Yeah. I'm going to mention a few. Okay. The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg. I, I really think that sometimes we have to take our ideas and execute them, and we can talk about all the things we want to accomplish in life and do, but sometimes it's, it's getting down to the nitty-gritty details of how we make change in our life, so that was important to me. And another book that I really loved was Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Uh, the message that was so important to me was, life's going to happen to us, things are going to go on, but what kind of relationship do we want to have with the things in our lives? And how can we make meaning out of it? And what is the best productivity tool or device that you have bought or started using the last two years? I, my, I, I use Trello, the app. It, it organizes all the things I need to do and all the things I need to take care of. And when you run your own business, there's other stuff that you have to deal with. And getting in my continuing ed for my licensing and making sure to take care of the tax payments I need to do and make sure the payroll set up and all kinds of things like that. So it helps me become very organized. I love using G Suite. I love that I could set up a whole bunch of emails and have them sent the following morning so it doesn't look like I'm working. So I'm not encouraging people to interact with me all the time because I... I I am, I am portraying good boundaries, even though my boundaries might be a little slippery. And I, I guess those, I rely on those too, for the most part. Dr. Septimus, so I want to transition a little bit to talk about your family life mm -hmm. as a mother, balancing your career and also your responsibilities at home. So when you initially made the decision to have a career, how did you think about it in the context of a family or family life? Excellent question, excellent question. I, th I felt that I wanna power through and get my degree and get that out of the way. So like I said, some of my other fellow psychology students were coming in a couple of years older with more different kinds of life experience I felt that family life was going to be important to me I'm young I have a lot of energy and let me just get this out of the way and get myself going so that was one thing I was thinking about I came from an environment where 
men, women, work, have careers. You know, in, in thinking back, the culture at the time, not that I'm like ancient, but every generation makes a difference. I didn't have a lot of role models for dual careers, both mothers and fathers working. So I didn't have a set model for that. But I did know that career was important to me as well. And something I was thinking about, even while I was dating or all early discussions with my husband, Alan, was just looking for someone that had the same attitude I did. And I think that's really important because working full-time, working even part-time, and raising a family, raising with, especially with an orthodox lifestyle, there are a lot of demands from your children and, and just the lifestyle. So I... I thought about, you know, I thought about that. Those were discussions I had with the people that I dated, the discussions I had with Alan. And really something when I look back was that I always had support, both emotional and practical support. And I think that's really important. And maybe I'm going to venture to say necessary. And I think there are many different ways to get it. You could have it within your relationship. You could have it from your children. You could have it from other family members. You can pay for all kinds of support. You could pay to offload all kinds of other responsibilities so that the time, the time you have with your family is time well spent and you're not bogged down with other responsibilities that take away from that. And you have five children. So how do you balance work and kids? I wonder what my kids would say about that. <laughs> but I actually have a good story to tell you. I'll, I'll, I'll get to it. I really focused on quality of time with my kids. Like I said, I offload housekeeping stuff, shopping stuff to, especially now, you know, just order stuff online. And Alan always went food shopping, but before he... Actually, not always. Now, for sure. But before that, I would do something like what Instacart is now. I would email the grocery store and get deliveries. So I felt like my priority is when I'm on, I want energy for my kids. And I don't want to do some of the other homemaking responsibilities because I want to be present with my kids. And I wouldn't say you could exchange quantity and quality because I certainly had less time than people that were home all day, but I think quality goes a long way. And what was such a great experience was when I turned 40, my friends made me a surprise video and interviewed my children and asked them all sorts of questions about me. And one of the questions they asked, and by the way, each child was interviewed separately, didn't hear what the other sibling said, each kid was asked, what's my mom's favorite thing to do? And each child said, spend time with me. So that was like, oh, okay, everyone could go home now. The party's <laughs> over. I feel great. Um, so I, getting back to Orthodox lifestyle, I think I, I was never the PTA mom. I could, I could never do that volunteer kind of stuff. But I felt like the work I did had those components and I always was 
available to the shuls and the schools, shuls meaning synagogues, and schools to come in if they ever needed any consulting work, if they ever needed someone to public speak. So I was able to give back in that way and show that to my kids that I can give and be involved in their, in their schools in that way. So how has your clinical expertise shaped the way that you parent versus what you may have seen in your home growing up? Ah, another good question for my kids about how I parent. I definitely had the advantage of reading lots of books on childhood development, relationships, parenting. I hope it had a positive effect on me. I even ran parenting groups 10 years ago. And actually, I had such a funny situation. I was at a mommy and me class, and I bumped into two moms that were taking the parenting class with me. And I was thinking to myself, oh, goodness, I hope they don't think I'm watching their parenting. I feel so bad that I'm here, and they have to experience that. <laughs> and after the class, they came over to me, and they said, don't worry, we're not going to judge your parenting. <laughs> so it was funny. But so I... I think it, it was helpful to know the shoulds and shouldn'ts of parenting. I think when it comes down to it, if I lose it, I'm losing it. And I probably know I'm, you know, oh, I shouldn't do that. So I guess I know what I'm doing right. and <laughs> I know what I'm doing wrong. So at least I have that advantage. But I, yeah, overall, I think it, it's been helpful. And do you ever feel that you're missing out on quality time with your family while you're working? I was fortunate to have the opportunity to transition to, at times, part-time work and also to design my own hours, which ebbed and flowed depending on what was going on in my family life. And I guess overall, there have been times that I might have missed out on a thing or two because of my work schedule or felt that I wasn't there as much as the next mom. But I think overall, I have this feeling that I was very, was and still am present for my kids. I will say that one thing I did notice over the years is that my needs, my personal needs probably came last and that suffered to some degree. And that's still a work in progress if you're asking what's a work in progress. So for example, there many years in order to get to the gym and fit my work schedule in and get the deal with the kids and everything, I would wake up and be at the gym at 5.30 in the morning so that I could get home and get everyone to school. And then, and then I was on as soon as I got home and maybe other moms had downtime. I didn't. I walked in the door and that was the next job, right? Taking care of the kids. And I wanted to be all in. So I'm all in all night. And then there wasn't really much time for my own socializing or my own interests. And maybe when I was in it, I didn't realize all those years I was really coming last, but I think I, I know that I was. And now I'm making up for it, and my kids are totally making fun of me. Where are you going, tennis? Where, oh, you had your piano <laughs> lesson? So th those are two newish, newer changes that I made that I think really are healthy that make me feel more unbalanced and that's I play tennis four or five times a week and I play piano which is something I came which I returned to since childhood so and that and try to socialize more with friends so that was always challenging I will say 
women can have it all. Something's got to give. And maybe for women, it's us. When it comes to a career and raising a family, what advice do you give to your daughters? I guess I'll dovetail what I was just saying, and that's there's career and what that demands, and then there's family life and what that demands, but you also have to make time for your own personal needs and your marriage and make sure that's in balance. And obviously that balance is going to shift depending on what your family life looks like and different times in your life. That would be my advice to be much more thoughtful of that because as a mom, you're obviously inclined to give your kids what they need. And the place that has the most room to get cut, you know, cut out is yourself. And I think for years I didn't sleep enough. Like I said, I didn't get to take care of some other things. So if I had to do it all over again, I'd pay more attention to that. That was really insightful. And <laughs> I want to transition into talking about your experience in dealing with the effects of the pandemic, specifically on children and teenagers. We hear a lot about the dramatic increases in depression, anxiety, substance abuse, suicide, or suicidal thoughts, specifically among young adults. So I wanted to ask you if this was correct, that you genuinely, like you've seen these trends in these increasing um, psychological issues. And yeah. <laughs> That's, that is exactly my experience. I think that teens and kids were struggling a lot on many levels. So for example, there was a lot of anxiety in the air. I think parents were anxious. I think scary things were going on. And if people had predispositions to anxiety, it would get exhibited. I think in addition to that, therapists were not, were hesitant about showing up in the office and people that were getting help to begin with maybe weren't having the in-person experience. I think that was hard for people. I think people were cutting back in their work because of COVID-related things. And I think there were more wait lists of people trying to get help. I think in addition, what was making kids and teens vulnerable was that a lot of the coping resources and tools that people have and they use in their daily life to balance out stress, anxiety, sadness, were ripped away from them. So. At the time, you know, going back, people couldn't go to school. They couldn't see their friends. They couldn't get together with their friends. They could, didn't have after-school programs, which is an outlet for people. They, just social supports in general, social networking. And I think that all contributed to some of, you know, all those problems that people were experiencing. And do you think these challenges are ongoing or will we see a drop down to pre-pandemic levels? I think as we were recovering and getting back into our routine, I noticed at least in my practice and speaking to my colleagues that, that kids and teens started to do much better and recover. And that's actually something about kids and teens is they're pretty resilient and live very much in the moment. And while adults may like ponder and reflect and think and regret and worry, I think kids, particularly kids, 
get to just like, all right, that was yesterday. That's over. Here I am now back in school. Good. We're fine. And in your opinion, what could or should the government, communities, healthcare organizations have done to reduce these challenges we face? In general, there is, from my, from my understanding, there is much less support in all kinds of ways for mental health services, mental health programming, and... It's somehow very different from, from medicine. Even access to care. When people buy in medical insurance plans, a lot of times their mental health plan doesn't allow them to get the kind of care they need or the quality of care that they need. I, I really hope that the American Psychological Association does more advocacy. So on a legislative level, we make changes in terms of access and to care and quality of care. I think that's going to be helpful. Hey guys, it's Ariana. Don't forget to follow us on our Instagram at be the blank podcast to see behind the scenes content for our podcast, as well as info about our upcoming guests. Leave us a like. And closing off, we want to touch on a very important topic pertaining to women in the workforce. Did finances always play a role in your decision and in your career choice? Well, I have to say that I'm glad you say it's very important because I think it is. We were spending a lot of time talking about why did I choose what I did and, and how did it feel to choose this field and, and be a psychologist. But another very practical factor is that it allows me to be financially independent. And when women work, they earn their own money. And that is very important for so many reasons. One is, I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but you never know where life's going to take you. And for one reason or another, the, your husband or the person that you live with may, may have financial stress. You as a family might have financial stress. And it's important to know that you play a role in providing for your family. I've, I've worked with a number of patients who felt trapped in their marriage. And they were trapped because they felt that it was a dysfunctional relationship and they didn't know financially if they could afford to get out of it. But I actually have my own personal experience. And my husband, thank God, is successful in his work, but during the pandemic, his whole business was shut down for two years. And thank God, we were able to rely on me. And it's a partnership. And we both contribute and we were both able to rely on each other when we need to. And the last thing I will say is that earning money allowed me to pay for things I don't want to do. And I felt like that had a positive impact on the quality of my life. So I thought that that was important too. So in, in thinking about what kind of career and how should I execute my career, I, something that always was important is I have a career and it earns me, it earns me financial security and that is incredibly important. And I'm so glad that you mentioned this because it's one of our overarching messages in our podcast, the title itself, Be the Blank Your Mom Wants You to Marry, it's Be the 
psychologist your mom wants to marry instead of relying on someone else to bring in income instead of relying on someone else period you are able to have the control of your life and have like the security that you are able to provide for yourself and your family and yeah i couldn't have said it better so dr septimus thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today it was my absolute pleasure. I am so glad you're doing a podcast series like this. I think it's incredibly important that you are providing opportunities for your audience, fellow teens, to hear about what it might look like for them or potentially down the road. We hope the listeners enjoyed our conversation as much as we did. Please check out our other episodes and visit us on Instagram. See you soon.